Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. Hey, this is Morgan. Before we start the show, I'm just here to remind everyone that we are currently in the midst of a review drive here at Quick to Listen. If you're wondering what that is, let me tell you. Essentially, from now until November 16th, we're asking listeners to rate and review our podcast on Apple Podcasts. If you do leave a review and include a question that you'd like Mark and myself to answer, and we get 50 reviews in the next couple weeks or until November 16th, we will tape a special podcast answering those questions. The main thing that you need to know is that we will only tape the show if and only if we get 50 reviews. So get at it and hopefully we can do this podcast for you guys. Thanks. And here's the show. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, and today I'm excited to be joined by Ted Olson, our editorial director here at Christianity Today. Hey, Morgan. Nice to sit in for Mark again. It's, it's always fun to do this. I'm pumped because we have to talk about something that you and I both really like, which are museums today. Yeah, definitely. I, I, yeah, I love museums, and museums, we'll get into it, but it's, uh, we got a big one open in, in a couple weeks. Absolutely. So who do we have to chat with us about this big museum that's opening that we'll reveal in a second? <laughs> well, people will figure it out <laughs> when I introduce. Uh, Glenn, uh, Glenn Powell uh, is our guest. I've known him for a while. He's worked in Bible ministry for 28 years as he's published and, and researched and, and spoke and, and written on the topic of Bible reading, living the Bible well. Uh, he oversaw the nonprofit publishing of the New International Version, led the development of community Bible experiences, and the Bible format called The Books of the Bible, which was one of the first efforts in this recent trend to make Bibles easier to read for long stretches. He's also the author of Saving the Bible from Ourselves and is currently Senior Director of Content for the Institute for Bible Reading, uh, where he's right now working on Immerse, a reading Bible uh, with Tyndale for the New Living Translation. Hey, Glenn. Hey, Morgan. Hey, Ted. Good to be with you. Yeah, thanks for coming on. I have a non-Bible-related question. Um, What type of jokes have you gotten about your last name growing up? Oh, so many. Well, then... You know, I grew up in a Dutch Reformed community, and a lot of people knew that the name Pow means peacock, so that just made it worse. Whoa! <laughs> there you go. That's when you know yeah. what you're in a tight community, when they know what your name means in its original exactly. language. Exactly. Right. So I had to escape to, uh, to go to places where people didn't know what it meant. And we're just impressed that it sounds like big impact. Well, I'm just going to say, <laughs> right. you move from people who don't know what it means, but then people who probably struggle over how, knowing how to say it, though. Right. So that's... Yeah. I always said, we took all the vowels, and that's why the Eastern European countries don't have any. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, fair enough. It's great to have you today. This week on Quick to Listen, we're going to talk about the Museum of the Bible, if you haven't guessed that already. And it's actually the topic of our November cover story. And so, as always, I invite people to read that. That as we get into our discussion today on the show. So in a couple of weeks, the half a billion dollar genre busting and technologically groundbreaking Museum of the Bible will open its doors in Washington, D.C. The 430,000 square foot building boasts fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls, 
a rooftop restaurant that sells biblical foods, 40-foot bronze doors that mimic Gutenberg's printing press, and a handheld digital docent that will offer visitors a real-time, customizable experience, but with technology that didn't exist before this project started. And like I said earlier, you can read all the details in our November cover story. Although the museum is being bankrolled by Christians, the Green family, behind Hobby Lobby to be exact, its mission isn't just to serve the church. Our mission is to help people engage with the Bible, period. Hobby Lobby president and Museum of the Bible founder Steve Green told CT, We seek to invite all people to engage with the Bible, not to evangelize them. Today on Quick to Listen, we'll unpack what it means to have a museum of the Bible. What does it mean to engage the Bible rather than read the Bible? Do Christians and non-Christians engage differently? What role do Bible-related experiences play in our understanding and delighting in the Word of God? So before we get into this really interesting discussion that we're about to have, I want to just remind everyone that this show is made possible by everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today magazine. You can do that by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen. So Ted, as you know, I've already mentioned three times that this is our cover story for November, but one of the reasons why I think it's actually really worth reading is because we have a really awesome writer who went to the Museum of the Bible and then reported on his experiences there. Right. Marty Jones, uh, people may remember him for another recent cover story uh, on the Bethel Church Movement that ran in May of last year. Uh, we sent him to D.C. to take a look at this uh, museum. And yeah, he's really good at just uh, being very observant, using all of his senses to kind of tell what, what, it, what it is like somewhere. He does a good job of asking questions, but he, he, I think he really is a, a, nice, a nice way to be a proxy for the reader uh, who may not be familiar with a, a place or a movement and just let you experience that through his eyes and ears. The thing about how Marty writes is that it's definitely 100% not just another news story. His writing can be very evocative and just really interesting to read at times, but also really beautiful writing. So I think that it would just it, it, it would complement anyone who's trying to know more about this museum, their experiences by reading this particular passage. I see you've also turned to our editor's note. And one thing that's funny in our editor's note is that you can read why Mark Galley, who normally hosts the show, unsubscribe to Christianity Today, and also how that fits in with Museum of the Bible, too, which is kind of cool. Indeed. All right. So once again, you can subscribe to the magazine and read these stories at orderct.com slash quick to listen. That is orderct.com slash quick to listen. All right, Ted, as you know from your times guest hosting on the show, we often have gut checks, which is when you and I give our feelings and emotions about something that has been in the news. And so I'm wondering here, what is your gut check when you read all the stuff about Museum of the Bible? I am, I'm really excited about the Museum of the Bible. I've been a bunch of different Bible museum or, you know, related things over the years. And uh, there's one in Amsterdam, for example, that's pretty small, but has a lot of cool old historic Bibles. Uh, the Bible, you know, the you know, British Library has some cool Bibles and Bible-related uh, material. You know, other museums have, you know, artifacts from first century Palestine. And yeah, they, they are, they've all been cool in their own ways. Uh, but to have uh, something on this kind Kind of grand scale. I mean, this is a fairly epic collection. It's a fairly epic technological thing. It should have a lot of wows. There's a lot of other museums that are that are uh, you know emerging uh, that are already looking to the Bible Museum to say, okay, this is this is cutting edge stuff. So I'm I'm looking forward to that. I, I I'm very excited to go. I went to the Museum of the Bible last year and I was not excited about it. 
You went to the Museum of the Bible, like, while it was under construction? Correct. Yeah. That, that is part of the reason I was not excited about it is because it was under construction and just more challenging to get a sense of what how their vision would actually play out. Then I went to a conference that you were also at back in April, and the Museum of the Bible folks gave another presentation about what they were going to do, and I just was, like, very blown away, I guess, by the stuff that they have in mind. And I also realized, that, like, during that stretch of time, I, like, went to some other museums that I know 10 years ago used technology that was exciting. It was not as exciting these days. So then I was like, oh, my gosh, it's really cool that they're going to use, all you know, pioneer all this type of new stuff because that's actually, at least for me, part of what I really like about museums is how they incorporate technology to illuminate their subject. All right, Glenn, what makes you excited about Museum of the Bible? I'm excited when I first heard about this, and I've known about it for some time, because um, we've had some contact with the Green family ourselves, and they've been supporters of our work through the years, Bible engagement things. So I know their intention and their heart. Um, but mostly I'm excited because they chose a place like Washington, D.C., instead of a place that's kind of an evangelical subcultural kingdom off someplace you know, else in the United States. So I think it was a wise choice to put it right in the middle of the conversation in a place like Washington, D.C. And I I know deeply that the Bible is in trouble in our world, in our culture, in America these days. So I think anything that gets it back into the conversation is to be welcomed. It's exciting to think that th this will be visible and accessible to people, broader public. And I hope that, that happens. Um, I haven't seen it myself yet, so I don't know the nature of the presentation of the Bible that's going to be kind of in all these exhibits. And I know a lot about it. I know about the technology. I know about the kinds of things they're doing as you go through the different floors of the museum. Uh, but but in general, I'm excited about the possibilities. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit in terms of uh, location with the, the Museum of Biblical Art uh, that was right there in the middle of, of Manhattan. Uh, it was open from uh, 2005 until 2015 when uh, the... Uh, American Bible Society ended up moving uh, and you know losing its uh, losing its space, which also led to the closure of the museum. But yeah, that was a that was a place where when it first <laughs> when it was first announced and when it was first uh, starting, people were like, I don't know, you know, is this going to be too insular? Is it going to be too Christian? And it definitely uh, within the art world was a a major a major museum. People really loved what they were doing in the Museum of Biblical Art. I'm hoping that uh, this, by being, you know, right right along kind of Smithsonian Row, practically, uh, will have some of that same effect where people are, there's no, it's it's definitely fair to say there's a number of, of non-Christians who are a little skeptical at the museum right now, but uh, I do think there's some hope that it, it can win folks over. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I'm, I you know, there are dangers. The Bible is, I mean, obviously lots of interpretations, and there are going to be people who are skeptical about what um, the Green family is going to do in a museum on the Bible. But um, I think uh, we should be open until we see it for ourselves. And, and I think, again, just getting the Bible into the conversation is a win, um, because increasingly um, the general public and even Christians are kind of having their doubts about the Bible's ability to speak into our public culture, our bigger situation, not just our Sunday morning worship services. So um, I'm hopeful. So I really want to talk about what this museum is going to do for the Bible itself and especially the way that we engage with it, as we'll 
move further into this discussion. But I think it's worthwhile to back up and just think about museums themselves, even though I still said we couldn't talk about museums the entire time. Um, And just if each of us could just share a time when a museum helped us personally understand something better or potentially changed our mind about something. Ted, do you want to chime in on this first? I've definitely been at museums where I have observed things. I said, okay, now I know what this thing looks like. And I've been to places that uh, have a similar reaction that I've had where I've gone to some churches and had kind of a, a pilgrimage thing. They go, yeah, there are relics in that reliquary there that, you know, supposedly belong to, you know, whatever, you know, apostle or saint or whatever. I've thought, okay, that's interesting. I have seen that. But then there's been like immersive experiences like, um, you know, oddly enough, I remember super vividly going to Colonial Williamsburg as a kid. Me too. Yeah. And that is museum-like. And it definitely not only shaped the way I think about colonial America, for better or for worse, right? I mean, you know, I have since learned some things uh, where I'm like, oh, yes, this was part of colonial America too, and not as uh, lovely as colonial Williamsburg was, at least in the, uh, you know, uh, late 70s, early 80s. Yeah, and it got me really interested in colonial America for years. Uh, So it definitely drove, you know, engagement and not just not just knowledge. And it also drove my imagination time. I mean, for a very long time, you know, I'd kind of, you know, when in some of my fantasies would just kind of picture myself back in the 1700s. Uh, a really good museum at its best can kind of not just shape your uh, brain, but can really shape your imagination. That's interesting. I took a trip to the East Coast and uh, we went to D.C., but it was going down to Mount Vernon, Mount uh, George Washington's place. And also we went to Gettysburg on the way. Now, we weren't necessarily what you would call a museum, but they were museum-like experiences. Lots of artifacts, kind of recreation of earlier situations. Um, you could kind of, and, and actually being in the place and having it multi-dimensional, you know, and I know one of the things is the technology of this museum is going to be not just static artifact that you look through glass at, but actually trying to create immersive experiences that use various media together. Um, Those kind of experiences that I had at Gettysburg and Mount Vernon, really for the first time, because the first time I'd been to those places, was transformative in terms of my understanding. I could actually see how things worked and what happened where. It just kind of deepened my interest and, and deepened my understanding. So I think if these things are done well, that's exactly what they can do. The implicit you know, promise of a museum of the Bible is a lot like the explicit promises of, of, a, of a pilgrimage, really, especially of a, of a Holy Land trip. You know, this, this idea, we get a lot of—there's uh, a number of ads in CT and a number of uh, pitches we get. You know, here's why you should go to Israel. You know, it, it, you engage the senses. You can see that there's you know, real history uh, in your Bible, that these things really happened. It can shape the vague pictures in your mind. You may think, oh, you know, the, you know here's what the Sea of Galilee is like. But when you actually see the Sea of Galilee, all of a sudden things start snapping into place. Glenn, how, how can a trip like this, whether it's to the you know, Bible Museum or to the Holy Land, um, how can that help us actually read our Bibles better? And what should, be, what should we be uh, kind of watching out for uh, in terms of there's a, if there's a flip side of that? Like, what do we need to be on guard against? This takes on head-on what I think is one of the, the biggest problems we have with Bible engagement, and that is anachronism. I think it's so tempting to read the Bible as if it was written directly to us in our situation, 
and kind of skip the parts that are about other people in other places and find the, the little pieces that seem to speak directly to me today without any mediation, without any middle party. And I think a museum experience like this has the potential to, to widely open our eyes to the fact that the Bible is, is immersed in real ancient history, that it's very different from ours, and that the very first step to great Bible engagement is understanding the Bible in its own world and on its own terms. And I think that's, that's potentially a huge win here, is that people will realize, wow, whatever the Bible says, it was saying it in this context, and I have to understand it first in that context before I can just flippantly say it's directly a word for us today. The danger, then, I would say on the other side is, I worry about this a little bit with the technology side of things, any kind of immersive Bible experience, you know, you're, you're getting into Nazareth the way Jesus would have experienced it or whichever one you choose, the more technology you use and the more it becomes a 3D or even a film or video kind of thing, the interpretation level has to go up. I mean, it, it, the Bible is always going to be interpreted. A translation is interpretive, but... The farther you get into visual media, I think you have to decide what kind of experience was this and is this. And I think that's where we have to watch, like what story actually gets told. And of course, the church and, and scholars debate these things. What was Jesus actually doing? What's the meaning of his words? And and I think the, the movement toward a historical understanding of Jesus has been hugely helpful and corrective in our understanding of our theology, but it's still somebody's story. It's somebody's telling, somebody's interpretation. So we should watch carefully what story is being told. I'm curious if you can help uh, us understand a little bit better how understanding the foreignness of Scripture uh, helps us as a as a church and helps us as followers of Christ. I, I'm reminded of this uh, essay that uh, Kierkegaard has called very provocatively uh, Kill the Commentators, where he talks about, uh, you know, we live under the illusion that we must first have the interpretation right or, or the belief in some perfect form before we can begin to live. Uh, we never get around to doing what the Word says. Uh, he has this line where uh, the matter is quite simple. The Bible is very easy to understand, but we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. I can definitely point to times when I have used uh, commentaries, notes to protect myself from Scripture uh, and think, like, that can't be possibly what uh, the Bible is asking me to do, so let me uh, protect myself against it with scholarship. Yeah, and I think this doesn't have to be uh, ending up into scholarly, you know, myriad weeds that we can never find our way out of. Um, it certainly becomes that, and I think that Kierkegaard quote is powerful and um, indicting. So I, I hear that. At the same time, um, we really do have to do this work. I think if you're not willing to do any historical work at all, then the misrepresentations, the misunderstanding, the misapplication of the Bible will be devastating. Mark Knoll has this terrific book, The Civil War is a Theological Crisis. There's one chapter in there specifically on how each side in the debate used the Bible to either justify or condemn slavery. And the pro-slavery people had a lot more verses they could line up um, because they were just picking verses that talked about slavery and lining them up, which is the danger of kind of the modern fragmentary approach to the Bible. So 
if you just take the Bible as straight up God's word to us and and quit making it complicated and just do it, um, it's pretty easy to say the Bible is pro-slavery. Um, I don't think that's where we want to end up. But you have to have some kind of strategy for reading the Bible a particular way if you're not going to end up with a pro-slavery, anti-woman, et cetera, et cetera, kind of Bible. So we have to say, what was the word on slavery heard and what did it mean in its first world? That's the question that we start with. And then we say, where does the issue of slavery go as we travel through the narrative of the Bible? And do we end up in the same place? So a flat reading of the Bible, it's all the same. Um, doesn't matter where it's written or who it's written to. God said it. We believe it. We do it. That settles it. Kind of an approach um, gets you in big trouble. And I think we need to have better conversations about reading the Bible if we're going to live it well. And I think that's why the Bible is losing its influence in our culture, partially because the church has lost its way and it hasn't taught its people good ways to read the Bible. So it stays a redemptive, restorative narrative, not a reactionary, um, enslaving harmful kind of narrative. Glenn, it's interesting that you just bring up the part about slavery, since that will actually be something that the museum is going to be tackling. So it'll be, yeah, it'll be really interesting to see how they decide to kind of lay that out and illuminate it. We've talked a little bit about this idea of engagement. Um, and to some extent, the actions that you were describing just now could constitute engagement when it comes to the Bible. I'm just wondering, though, how do you parse the difference in language when we're talking about Bible engagement versus Bible reading versus Bible study, for instance? Well, I think in the modern period, we've created, you know, it's a, kind of a series of related things. We changed the form of the Bible. It's interesting, those giant plates, uh, you know, representation of the Gutenberg Bible plates that constitute the doors of the museum. Obviously a huge moment for the Bible when, when the printing press came and within a short amount of time, vernacular translations came on the scene. Interestingly, at the same time, that's when chapters and verses first appeared together in the Bible. So they had this big moment from about the mid-15th to the mid-16th centuries where the Bible changed and the Bible became available to the masses all at the same time, at a very close kind of historical proximity. And it's interesting that the form of the Bible that people could now read in their own language was this parsed up kind of fragmentary form where every verse was a separate paragraph. So we kind of learned to do Bible study. And we didn't, we kind of lost reading because it was no longer formatted for big, deep, immersive reading. And so I think we have a 500 year history of using the Bible a particular way, emphasizing study, less reading. And so I think this is a moment right now where the, the numbers are so devastating, really. If you look at the annual American Bible Society reports on the state of the Bible that come out every year, some other major studies that have been done. Um, Bible reading is down, but also um, Bible understanding, interest in the Bible, attitudes toward the Bible, especially among younger people. So it's not a great looking moment for the future right now. Um, it's interesting that the Museum of the Bible is opening right at this moment, but I think it's time for a kind of a rethink about the Bible and what we do with the Bible right at this 500-year anniversary of the Reformation moment that we're in. And I think reading is the first and most natural thing to do with the Bible. So I think getting back to Bible engagement is, first of all, getting back to Bible reading and then giving people the tools to read well 
So they know how to get from back then to here now in a way that makes sense to the story, and especially to the revelation of Jesus, who's at the center of the story. There's a Q&A that you did with us a couple months ago called Stop Snacking on Spiritual McNuggets. Uh-huh. I One thing that I found super interesting about the piece was you just talk about how for a long time scripture was read in the presence of other people as opposed to something that you, you know, sat alone with your Bible and read. And I'm wondering, when it comes to museums, right, this is something that we often experience collectively. Very rarely are we the only person in a museum or at a particular exhibit. And so what do you imagine will be the repercussions of having us in this museum within a larger community? And not only a community of people who are all attending the museum, but it's going to be a mixed religious background in many ways, too. Yeah, I love that part of it. It's another Another huge thing as part of that historical moment I described um, in the 15th and 16th centuries was the growth and the birth of individualism in a strong modern sense. So the Bible was kind of came to us in mass, available publicly in a big way for the first time. It was also the time when we became more individualistic as Western cultures. So we kind of thought private, quiet time is the thing to do with the Bible, and we still live with that. So I think anything we can do to recover more community-based experiences is a great thing, and I hope the museum does that. The Bible is a community formation book, and we've turned it into a me and God book, so we need to recover more kind of experiences of the Bible with other people, um, so we're not just bringing our own experiences and background and understandings to our intake of the Bible, but we're doing that collectively, and we see and hear things that we otherwise wouldn't see and hear in the Bible because our experiences kind of filter them out. So anything that brings us back into more communal engagement is where we need to head. Uh, what is a Bible experience? What is a, what, how does a Bible experience uh, differ from, uh, I guess, the traditional quiet time or devotions of uh, I pray and then I, I read the Scripture and then I, I meditate on it? Yeah, the way we're kind of crafting these experiences, first with community Bible experience and then now with Immerse, what we're trying to do is get entire churches to experience the Bible together in an in-depth way for a certain period of time where people are reading, and I think this could be done different ways, but but this is one thing to do, is to, to read at length. So read, we're having people read 10 to 12 pages a day, kind of reading natural literary divisions rather than chapters, which were artificially placed and often in the wrong wrong places. So they're reading whole books, or they're reading at least natural sections of, of whole books. Um, so it's bigger, it's it's understanding the context, and then it's getting together and not doing Bible study, but doing more like book club. So instead of curriculum-based, filling in the blanks, kind of looking for the right answer sort of discussions, we just have these general discussions like, what did you read for the first time? Or did anything bother you? this week as you were reading, anything that you struggled with. And what we're finding is when churches do this together and they're mixing up ages, they're mixing up groups, so it's not just the men's group and the women's group and kids often a separate thing, that the community is having these really amazing kind of conversations that they've never had before around the Bible. This episode is brought to you by Church Salary. Coming up with a reasonable salary range for church staff has never been easy. There are so many details to consider before setting compensation for church staff, and you're probably asking yourself questions like, are we paying too little or too much? What benefits do we offer employees? 
what's a reasonable housing allowance. Church Salary believes that offering competitive and fair compensation helps keep people in ministry. Using the expansive church-specific compensation database and powerful salary calculator tool, you can also make better compensation decisions so your staff can focus on their ministries. Start with Church Salary's annual membership today to run unlimited customized reports and get access to our member-only content. Ready to start making better compensation decisions? Get started at churchsalary.com. models is really fascinating to me as just someone who when I think of Bible study there's a certain level of like task orientation around that not necessarily in a bad way but sometimes almost like in this really like gratifying way that you complete a chapter of your devotional or you know you're talking about fill in the blanks even that type of stuff um, which can feel good versus wrestling and pondering with something outside of it or just letting something linger and much in the way that I guess in like an English class, you know, you'll read a text and you'll answer questions about the text and you'll discuss it in the class. But you don't necessarily say like, well, now I've kind of figured out what I'm supposed to take away from the text because, you know, there's there's even more to kind of discover or to push through or ponder about. I think that's great. I, but my experience is a little bit different because I, I, I'm definitely much more from the old, you know, quiet time devotions uh, tradition where format is, has been fairly open ended. Right. It's like here's generally what you're going to you know, what I'm going to read today read through Galatians until something hit me. Uh, I'm an Anglican now, so I, I tend to use more lectionary-based, um, you know, or morning prayer-based uh, uh, devotions. But it has been kind of finding—I mean, McNuggets is more pejorative, but uh, to me, I grew up in Awana. I have a number of, you know, individual verses memorized. Reading through, especially Paul, but but Gospels and Old Testament pieces as well. There is there is this moment where there is a sentence or there is a paragraph or there is an, an uh, one idea isolated among uh, a larger story that just smacks me in the face, and I go, man, that you know, I mean, the, the way I understand that is the Holy Spirit is there guiding my reading, but also prompting my spirit to you know hear certain certain things. I'm wary of a notion of like keep. <laughs> Once something hits you in the face, like, keep going, you still have uh, 10, 10, 10 chapters to read today. The reason we design these experiences the way we do is because we know for sure that's the one thing that is not happening. Rare, I mean, among a group of people in a church, there's a certain number who will do daily devotions, um, a lot who do not. Those who do daily devotions, some of those are going to be, you know, a Bible app with a verse of the day. They're not reading through Galatians. Um, there's a verse at the top, um, Jesus Calling, where you insert you, um, where we you know it's you personally and you lose the context and so forth. So um, there's all of that. But what, what rarely happens is people reading at length entire books and, and just keep going, um, making sure they, they do get the big arc. So, you know, it's not, it's not every day forever. It's an eight-week experience, but it's the thing that we know— just from our research, having now had hundreds of thousands of people go through, and we're the same team that developed the story at Zondervan, oh, yeah. uh -huh. Bible experience at Biblica, um, the Bible in 90 days, and now we're doing Immerse. So we're trying to create these kinds of bigger arc experiences because we know that's not happening otherwise. It tends to be the last on the list. Few very hardcore people say, I'll read through the Bible this year and do it. So we're trying to open up that experience. But what you say is certainly true, and it's certainly not an either-or kind of a thing. 
But I would say those things are especially powerful when, in fact, you have understood them in their context. Mm -hmm. You know, like we've made a song, Great is Thy Faithfulness, out of um, that one one verse in the middle of Lamentations, um, and it's five songs of brokenness and lament. There's exactly one place in the whole book that is positive like that, and, and we take it and isolate it. And I think what happens if you read all five songs of lament, those acrostic poems in, in Lamentations, where it's, it's just completely devastating. The language is harsh. There's anger at God. There's grief. And, and then you come to the middle of the middle song, and there's this golden passage. I think its power is increased exponentially when it's read in context in the whole book of Lamentations, which isn't that long and doesn't take that long to read. And then you get these words about God's faithfulness is new every morning. That's more powerful. So I think, you know, it's not wrong to use verses or individual sentences, but I think they just increase in power and and impact when they're read in their whole context. You know, I'm curious. We talked about technology a minute ago. The technology that I think maybe has helped me, I I have actually benefited a lot from the story and from the books of the Bible, some of these readers' Bibles uh, that have made it easier to read. One of the things that that has really helped for me, actually, is is audio Bibles. Yeah, I, I... just remember getting caught up in some of the letters of Paul and some of the Old, Old Testament narratives where I never did uh, in text, you know, because there were just all these uh, signals that said, hey, do you want to stop now? Hey, do you want to stop now? Because, you know, right. you got a chapter break, you got a you know, book yeah. break, you got a page break. But with an audio with an audio Bible, at least in the format I was using it, it just kept going and going and going. And you realize the story keeps going and going and going, or Paul's idea keeps going and going and going. And you just get caught up in it. And that has a, you know, that has a transformative aspect where I think that's an area where technology has really uh, has kind of brought it brought it back around on that. Yeah, and I don't know if it's true for you, Ted, but at least for me, as someone who's read the Bible a lot growing up, sometimes I just fill in the next sentences. Right. Yes. <laughs> and, which is part of the reason why I've basically stopped reading the Bible altogether and almost only exclusively listen to other people read it because. Uh-huh. I don't actually want to skip them. Right. You don't want to skip them. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah, there's this feeling, there's almost an inoculation. So, yeah. So, Glenn, we're talking about two different groups, right? We have one group that feels overexposed to Scripture and and kind of feels like, yeah, yeah, I know what Genesis says. Yeah, okay. I know, you know, Paul, I know what Philippians is about. Uh, rejoice. Okay, I got it. I know. I don't have to read it. I know what it says. You have another group that uh, just like, there is such thing as the Bible, but that's about as much as I, it got, there's God stuff in there. I can't, couldn't tell you much about it. Uh, when we talk about kind of big picture stuff, big stories of the Bible, you know, it's easy to tell the stories of Scripture without the words of Scripture. You know, I could watch in the animated movie, you know, The Prince of Egypt and get more or less the Exodus story. Uh, you know, I've really enjoyed the Jesus Storybook Bible, uh, reading that with my kids, but but it is uh, it is different than the actual uh, word and texts of Scripture. Would you throw those in as counting as kind of Bible engagement? They're great. Like, I use the Jesus Storybook Bible with my grandchildren, and um, I think it's, you know, those kinds of approaches are are exactly right um, for the right stages. But I've seen for myself the shock that happens with with some kids who, who never got kind of beyond that, um, and then suddenly have someone else point out to them these really hard passages in the Bible that they were completely unprepared kind of for, for dealing with. And I think um, this is all part of the, the humanity of the Bible, the historical nature of the Bible, the cultural embeddedness of the Bible. 
And, and we have to, I think, just help people kind of, because we've, as a culture, traveled so far from the Bible, we probably have to start with these easier, you know, like I'm just thinking of the kinds of experiences that will be available in the museum of the story. I know there's a lot of a story emphasis of this is what the story went like, this is what it's like in Jesus, and this is what the rest of the New Testament did. It's probably the, where we have to start. But when you actually get to the text, there's kind of no um, replacement for what the text can do. And I think we've we've lost a lot of the literary understanding of the Bible. Um, so we, we don't we don't pick up on all of its sarcasm, its use of literary devices, um, you know, just how Hebrew parallel poetry works. We're out of touch with that. And I think that's a lot of the beauty of the Bible has been lost and the power of its story and the reality of its ups and downs. And it's not just I think we've just made the Bible like we want it to be always encouraging, always positive, always giving me a promise from God. And we, we've lost touch with the real Bible. And so a lot of its power has been drained away. So I'm looking for, I just think in this regard, the church has to be countercultural and um, reading. But but I love I love what you both said about audio Bibles and closer than anything to the actual first experiences with the scriptures. Um, people heard it long before they could ever read it for themselves. So those experiences are are fantastic. I think evangelicals always haven't been thoughtful in their use of technology. Sometimes it's just cool to use the latest thing. All the way back for when we started using radio and TV, and and now with digital kind of um, options. But we don't always think through the implications. I think we haven't always been thoughtful um, communication people in terms of you know the lessons about how what different media do well um, and what they don't do well, what the tendencies are going to be in certain kinds of media-based experiences. We don't think through the implications. We just do it because it's cool and it's the latest. And I think we, we need to be more thoughtful about how we use technology with the Bible so that it actually serves the Bible, doesn't just serve the technology and is, has this big wow factor. My lasting question for you would just be, will we look back at this particular time in terms of all the technological developments as something that was as seminal for the Bible as the 15th and 16th centuries were? We're still in the embryonic stages of understanding digital technology and, and what that means for things. I mean, you know, the book by Nicholas Carr on... Uh, um, the Shallows. Yeah, the Shallows. I mean, that whole approach, like, we, we need to be careful. And I think evangelicals, because if an evangelical is anything, he's enthusiastic. People who want to get things done. And so we embrace things, and sometimes later we find out some of the unintended consequences, particularly of technology. And sometimes we find out too late that a technology like television, because of the requirements of keeping people's attention, produced a certain kind of presentation of Christianity. And we ended up with a whole bunch of televangelists, and uh, we learned our lessons later. So I would urge us to be not closed, and we're not just arguing for a return to earlier centuries, and we never want to embrace the use of new technology, but to just increase our thoughtfulness level. What does this mean for somebody's experiences? Is it filled with distractions? Is it is it against deep kind of immersion, um, losing yourself in the story, so to speak, like you do when you're reading a really great novel? You kind of lose track of where you are and, and what else is going on. We, we just have to be more intentional about using technology that actually serves the purposes of different parts of the Bible. Well, thank you so much for this really interesting discussion, Glenn. Um, as a reminder, anyone who has thoughts or feedback, you can 
leave that with us at Facebook. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash ctpodcasts, and we're on Twitter at ctpodcasts as well. Just a reminder to our listeners, we are still hunting for new podcasts to recommend. So tweet or Facebook or email us and send us your recommendations and tell us why you love this show. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments when we ask everyone to share something with our listeners that is bringing them joy. Ted, do you want to go? Yeah, I usually share a board game thing, but actually this time it's a podcast thing. I'm going to be shortly heading to the uh, Third Coast Audio Festival here in Chicago. It is a gathering of a lot of um, audio creators, largely in the kind of the public media vein. So folks from Radiolab will be there, This American Life, Playall, a number of the Gimlet shows. I went before the podcast boom. I, I would attend this thing and and people were worried about the, you know, collapse of radio and that kind of thing. And now it is funny being there because podcasts are so huge that it is uh, it is like the cool kids club now. It is funny. But yeah, just hearing people at the top of their craft talking about uh, their craft, especially journalistically, I find incredibly inspiring for my work here at CT. That's awesome, Ted. Are you online? I am. I am at Ted Olson on Twitter. Glenn? Yeah, I'm abnormally focused on um, on this Bible thing. But I received great joy this very week as I got three new reading Bibles. Um, and I can find now almost every major English translation in a reader's Bible. Yeah. Um, the Christian Standard Bible just came to me. Zondervan just released a new one in the NIV. And I've got some, some of the newer volumes in Immerse sent to me from Tyndale. So it's starting to feel to me, hopefully, like a bit of a movement. Like it, it will, I'm hoping, you know, in a generation, it will be natural for people to say, well, tonight I'm going to read the Bible. So instead of picking up my reference Bible, I'm going to pick up my reader's edition and it'll become common for everyone to have a reader's edition. Can you just define reader for people who may not be familiar with Sure. It's a single column Bible without any additives, chapters, verses, footnotes, cross-references, all the stuff we've added to modern Bibles that turn it into a dictionary-like product. Um, reader's editions are clean, simple, big type, good typography, easy to read, well-designed, and are immediately more immersive because of the physical format. Cool. Are you online at all? Um, I am. I uh, write regularly at the Institute for Bible Reading, uh, website, and I'm also uh, producing the stuff that you can find at immersebible.com. And I'm on Facebook. Um, I know Facebook um, is difficult, but it's where so much of the conversation happens. I, I'm trying to be redemptive as far as I can be and gracious and understanding and, and try to bring something good to Facebook. Bill, your last name for people who may not know how to... Yes, the last name is P-A-A-U-W. Thanks, Glenn. Okay, my precious moment is going to be from 1998 because that was my year of museums, so why not? We, My dad took a sabbatical that year. He, we bought a science museum pass. We went up the coast, uh, up the west coast, which is where we lived. I can't remember we went to the Exploratorium that year, but then we went to OMSI, which is the one in Oregon. Then we went to the Science, Pacific based in science, science Pacific Science Center. Then we went to the one in Vancouver. I think it's called Science World. Um, that happened in the month of July. Then in October was when we went to D.C. for the first time. We went to the Smithsonian's. Then we went to Williamsburg for two weeks, I think, because we wow. liked it so much. Golly. We also went to Yorktown and Jamestown. Did you at least make it to like King's Dominion or anything like that while you were... Not that time. No. <laughs> My family is normally an amusement park family, but this was kind of a deviation from that. There you go. 
But that was all like very, very, very formative stuff. I remember that trip more than I remember a lot of other trips that I went on. And I just remember, you know, I was like in third grade at the time being super curious and then being in a place where you could just like pursue all of those things that you were curious about. So those were just really fun. And I just remember thinking, man, if I ever have a family, I'm totally going to buy the Science Museum Pass and also go on a Science Museum road trip. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) The reciprocal museum uh, memberships are really nice. Yeah, one of my uh, uh, sadnesses with doing a CT cover story about the Museum of the Bible is now I can't be the person from <laughs> CT who expenses uh, a trip to D.C., <laughs> takes my family down to the see all the uh, museums and uh, do it. I, I, I will still find a way to, uh, to get myself to D.C., but probably not on CT's dime. Of course. Um, people can find me on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That's it for us this week. This podcast is produced by myself, Cray Allred, and Richard Clark. Thank you so much to them. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, which is where we ask you to rate and review the show. Um, But it is also um, a place that you can get the podcast as well as SoundCloud and Stitcher, wherever else you'd like to get them from. Please remember to subscribe to our magazine. It's orderct.com slash quick to listen, orderct.com slash quick to listen. Thank you so much for everyone who has subscribed and we will see you all next week.